the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host of OnScript along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I want to remind you that we've started another podcast. It's called The Biblical World. So look up Biblical World wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Share it with your friends who might be interested, especially if your friends are you know, going on a long road trip this summer, or maybe they're a trucker, or they uh, perhaps they, they drive a container ship. You know, all these different um, activities lend themselves to long periods of time when you can listen to podcasts. Or maybe they're um, through hiking the Appalachian Trail or the Continental Divide or Pacific Crest Trail, or if they're in the UK, Hadrian's Wall, you know, you get the idea. There are lots of things people might be engaged in in the podcast to, to while the time away. And what better thing to do than to tell them about OnScript and Biblical World. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey, Rebecca Terakun, Alan Files, and the rest of the team here that helps bring this show to people each week. We've got Beth Allison Barr on the podcast today, and we hope you enjoy it. Beth Allison Barr writes, This was my understanding of biblical womanhood. God designed women primarily to be submissive wives, virtuous mothers, and joyful homemakers. God designed men to lead in the homes as husbands and fathers, as well as in the church as pastors and elders and deacons. I believed that this gender hierarchy was divinely ordained. Elizabeth Elliot famously wrote that femininity receives. Women surrender, help, and respond, while husbands protect, provide, and initiate. A biblical woman is a submissive woman. This was my world for more than 40 years, until one day it wasn't. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Erin Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall, University of Oxford. Our guest today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr, Professor of History and Associate Dean of Graduate Studies at Baylor University, who is here to talk to us about her new book and give us all some insight into the emergence of biblical womanhood. I'm so looking forward to this conversation, Beth. Thank you for being here and welcome to OnScript. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk to you. Beth, you begin your book with this punchy sentence, I never meant to be an activist, which is, it's such a great beginning, by the way. Can you tell us what key moments in your life uh, precipitated your um, fall, if you will, into um, erstwhile activism? (laughs) How did you become an activist? Oh, it was not something I ever wanted to be. I am very much an introvert. I'm a behind the scenes type of person. I love, I mean, so many, so many of us become professors because we are like this, you know, we like to be at the classroom is great. I love engaging students in the classroom, but I don't really want to do it anywhere else. I don't want to be on stages. I don't want to be out in front. And to be an activist, you've got to do that. You've got to be out. You have to be the public face of something. So this is really something I fought against most of my, uh, most of my adult life. And it wasn't until after, it really was after the birth of my daughter between 2010 and um, 2016 that my conversion to activism began to take place. And that was when I began began to realize not only were the, was the understanding of complementarianism just irreconcilable with what I knew about the Bible, but that it also looked a lot more like what I knew about history than it did about what was supposed to make Christians distinctive. And I also began to realize how dangerous it is. And in 2016, that was what sort of pushed me over the edge when I realized that this warped understanding of what it was to be a biblical woman as well as a biblical man had gone so far to convince my Christian brothers and sisters that a man like Donald Trump represented Christian values. And that really was a key moment for me. And then also when our church 
was so inflexible on this subject to even consider having a woman in teaching position over teenage boys was not even something they would talk about. And those two things together really kind of pushed me over the edge where I thought this something has to change. And you've made this this you know brave and you know conscious decision to weave your own narrative through each chapter of this book which at least in my view is something that's often missing from scholarship and I think scholarship is the poorer for it but why was it important for you to to tell your your own story alongside the you know presentation of your scholarly research in this book yes so this was a hard decision also when i first started thinking about the book i didn't think about my personal narrative Um, but I also began to realize that the posts that I put out on Patheos, where I talk, really is where the making of biblical womanhood was born, that my most powerful ones were the ones in which I gave a glimpse of my journey. And so I was wrestling with it. And it really was a moment where I suddenly had this epiphany. I was like, you know, who am I talking to? I'm really not talking to my academic peers. They already know this stuff. You know, we might have scholarly disagreements about it, but none of this is new to any of them. And we've been discussing this stuff for years. They're not my audience. My audience is women and men in the church who have a disconnect between what academia has by faithful Christians and then what we're told in our churches. And so the way that I, you know, I grew up in the evangelical world. Um, When I first became a Christian, I memorized John 3.16. And then I learned how to give my testimony. And I realized that testimony is the language of evangelicals. And even though evidence is part of what we use to convince each other, it's our testimony that helps us to see the truth. And so I decided that this book, my audience was evangelical. So I needed to have the evangelical language, which is our testimony. Yeah, I think there was such wisdom in that. And again, I think it was a really, you know, it's a brave thing to do because you're opening yourself up to not just criticism of your scholarly <laughs> research, but criticism of your, you know, your personal narrative. And, yes. Um, I, and I've done some of that myself and I know how vulnerable and scary it is, but I also, I know, and I will say this to you, it's so appreciated that this is personal scholarship, that you've shown us that this this matters in people's lives. And I think, yeah, you're right. Evangelicals respond to it. At least I, as an evangelical, have certainly, um, certainly have responded to it. And and I wonder, just on the the flip side of that, on as a as a book um, about biblical womanhood, you acknowledge in this book that there's lots that have been written, you know, on the topic of biblical womanhood. So, in your scholarly research, what gap do you see um, as a scholar in the discussion that you're you're kind of hoping to fill with this book? Yes. So some of my scholarly research is in this book. It's actually part of a bigger project that I'm just now getting back to that I hope to have coming out shortly called Women in English Sermons. And um, what this is essentially is I am showing how in late medieval English sermons, there is a great deal of attention uh, to women in these texts. And this is a patriarchal time period. Women are certainly not considered to be equal to men. There is no feminism running throughout late medieval sermons. You know, I, I really try to emphasize that. Um, so, but what we do see is this pastoral emphasis that is emphasizing, you know, that, in fact, I was just reading this morning, I was just reading, um, this sermon this morning that's in a, it's a pretty well-known sermon. It's an early 15th century manuscript that's in the British Library. It's um, Manuscript Royal 18B23, but it's actually published by Early English Text as Middle English Sermon. So you can go and look it up and read it. But it has this one sermon where it has this really famous sermon story about this woman who um, wants to confess her sins. She's afraid to confess her sins. And Jesus comes to her and says, woman, you know, why are you afraid to show me your heart when I've shown you my heart? And it convinces her to confess. And the funny thing about this is it's sandwiched in between two scripture passages that in the Vulgate are male-centered, talking about um, how Jesus, you know, one's from Luke, where Jesus is talking about, you know, that even the lost sheep need to come, you know, it's in in all of those parables. But the language in the Vulgate is male-centered. And what's funny is that this 
passage, this sermon story is sandwiched in between these two male-centered Vulgate um, passages. And the sermon manuscript says, and so now I show you this so that you know that both men and women need to hear this. I mean, it's intentional to make sure people know that even though there is male language in the Bible, that these passages apply to women. And so medieval sermon authors were very attentive to this. Um, And this also, I think one of the things too that may be surprising to evangelicals is that medieval sermons don't emphasize female subjection. They don't emphasize female submission. It's a part of their world, but they don't find it important that they have to hammer it over women's head. I mean, it simply doesn't appear. Um, in late medieval English sermons, um, you know, you can, I can count on my hands the number of times it appears in late medieval English sermons. So I think, you know, from my evangelical standpoint, these things were very surprising to me, given how much emphasis evangelicals have had on fighting gender inclusive language and emphasizing above all other texts, the Pauline um, prescriptions against women. Yeah, boy, there's a lot that I that I want to ask questions about in in there, um, and and I want to especially come back to the medieval um, the women in me- medieval texts because I think there is this pervasive sense within evangelicalism that we are teaching something that has always been the case, right? And what I think this this book does um, because evangelicals are not always great with their medieval history. Um, and, and indeed, you know, the broader um, cultural setting of the, of the Protestant Reformation, or I mean, all of those things that we think we know really well, um, and we just assume it's always been this way. Actually, you're showing us that's not the case. We are, we're reading in a lot of assumptions there. But let's go back to Paul. Um, selfishly, I, I, you know, I could talk about Paul for the rest of the interview because I study Paul. Um, but I found, I found the, the beginning of this chapter so relatable um, because you said, when I teach, um, you know, you said your female students say, I hate Paul. And I've had that I hate Paul conversation with many, many, many students, particularly my female students, but not only my female students. Um, so what do you think, where do you think, where do you think we go wrong in our reading of Paul and um, as, you know, as a historian, what do you think we can learn from Christians in other times and places about how maybe we can learn to read Paul differently? Yes. Yeah, so this was really one of the things I was trying to emphasize. Um, I sort of tried to also, I didn't realize it at the time, but I also kind of took the approach that Lucy Pepiat takes. And I just love Lucy Pepiat. She's just fantastic. Um, but her, but my Lucy, approach- we all love you at OnScript. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a shared sentiment. Lucy oh. used to work with one of our co-hosts and she's friend off less shout out to Lucy. Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, one of the things about her is that she's just so relaxed about this and she's also so firm. Um, but you know, her approach to in women in Corinth, one of the things she says, look, what if we read it differently? What if we see that there are other ways to read this? And that's exactly what I'm trying to do because I think what the evangelical narrative has done is we have we have, because of inerrancy, which I've been really slammed with lately about what I have said about inerrancy, that's a whole nother thing. Um, but because inerrancy has made us rigid, it has made us so rigid. And we're afraid that if we don't see the text in this one way, that it means we're going to lose our faith and fall off that cliff of apostasy sort of thing. And what I love about like Lucy's approach to it is like, look, that's not going to actually happen. There's a lot of faithful Christians who have looked at this text and come out with different understandings. But what we need to think about are the theological ramifications of our understandings. And the theological ramifications of um, a of centering Paul's prescriptions against women and the household codes, centering those, and then centering those from a male perspective where we put male power in the center of those texts, what that leads us to is this theological interpretation that women are underneath the creation order of men. And this is a bad theology. It is not a theology that's supported in in Genesis 
It's one we have to read back into Genesis, taking just these few Pauline texts that we are looking at through a particular lens of male-centered power, and then taking that back to Genesis, and then trying to read the whole Bible through it. Um, I really think that's what we've done as evangelicals, is we have, instead of having a Jesus theology, we have a we have a Paul theology centered only on a small part of Paul that we have read out of context. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, I will just, yeah. I will, as a, as a Pauline scholar, I will just say a hearty amen to all of that. Um, but I think, I think the thing that that I find most frustrating about fixating on those specific texts that in my view, aren't actually as clear as one might hope. They might appear to be really clear in English translations, but they're not particularly clear, at least in my view, in Greek, um, is that then we have to, it's not just we read Genesis, you know, we, we take that interpretation, we read Genesis, we take that interpretation, we have to read all of Paul that way. Yes. Oh, and there's yes. plenty of, yeah, there's plenty of data, in, as you point out in your book, but there's plenty of data in Paul that doesn't fit that um that mold very well. So then we have to come up with all sorts of arguments of, you know, why women aren't doing the things that Paul seems to commend them for doing in all sorts of places. Yes. And, and that's and when I we just, get, oh, sorry. I, oh, that's no, when go we ahead. Get, we get crazy lists like Wayne Grudem's, you know, what is that, like 87 things in the church and 60 some of them women. Can't, I mean, we get like these crazy things and we're like, where did you get that from? I mean, None of that's in the text. So anyway, I'll let you continue. I'm no, sorry. It's so, well, no, it's so true. Oh, that, yeah. I remember coming across that list as a, <laughs> as a seminary student and just feeling, I mean, we, I, I hope I can, it can be a point, you know, now in my career that I can laugh at it. But boy, was that hard, you know, to see that list made and to think, um, you know, it took me a long time to realize that the spirit of God is not confined by a list on a, in, a, in a page in a book. Oh, that's, that's really what I'm trying to help women and men see is that you can be a faithful Christian and see this stuff differently. Well, and I think, I think you can be a rigorous scholar and see, um, yes, Paul differently too. Uh, yes. you know, yeah. And like those, those two things are, um, and you can, you know, and you can believe in something that um, at least I would call inerrancy and believe that we can read Paul differently. Um, yeah, all of the, I, all of those things are true, but yes. Um, so let's, let's move on to the, um, the medieval portion of the book, because I think that material is probably new to a lot of, um, to a lot of your, your audience. And I think even to like a new Testament scholar, like me picking this book up or a theologian, even though we've been in these conversations for a long time, you know, this is this is outside of our area of expertise, and again, we assume that we know it. But um, I'm going to assume that we don't know it because I definitely didn't know it. Not that my experience is normative, but I think it's a really interest. It's just a really interesting set of data. So, um, who are some of the women of medieval Christianity that you think we should all know something about? And you know, maybe why are their stories important to our understanding of? you know, this making of biblical womanhood that you're tracing through the book? Yeah. So um, one, I mean, I talk about the women that I really wish were part of our vocabulary in modern evangelicalism. And one of them is um, Christine de Pizan. And Christine de Pizan, I mean, she's a remarkable figure. Um, she's a woman who everything in her life went wrong. Um, you know, she ends up widowed after only having been married for a handful of years with three kids, her father dead, her husband dead, her mother-in-law to support, and, and no income. And luckily, she has a lot of connections, and she's, uh, she's smart. So she starts writing, and she makes her living by, by essentially being a professional writer. I mean, it's a really remarkable story um, in the 15th century. And one of the things, too, and I'm sure it's because of her position, but she realizes how vulnerable women are. And she realizes probably how things could have gone very south for her um, if she hadn't had enough friends in the right places to be able to pay her for what she wrote. And if she hadn't gotten the education to be able to write. So she kind of, you know, she's not a feminist. We can't use that word in the medieval era. And so this is nothing about trying to, you know, bring modern concepts to the medieval world. But what she did realize is that women have not been portrayed accurately 
in the text and in histories and even in the church. And so she went on sort of a campaign to show how the portrayal of women matters. And one of her most poignant, I think, and I talk about this in the book, she has this letter that she writes against this very misogynist text. And she tells a story of how that misogynist text was used by a husband to beat his wife. And she says, because of this woman, this matters. You know, I'm going to fight, essentially, I'm going to fight this bad idea about women because I see how it hurts real women. And that's remarkable. And it's remarkable because she's doing it in just as patriarchal an age as we are today. And yet she also sees how these ideas damage women and are also contrary to what we see in the Bible and to what we see in history. And so in many ways, what I'm actually trying to do with my book is what Christine de Pizan tried to do with hers, you know, show how not only is this not, our ideas about women are not biblically accurate, but they're also not historically accurate and they hurt women. Um, And so I think it's really remarkable that this is something that a woman several hundred years ago saw. And if we actually go back even further in time, we see other women doing the same sorts of things. Um, You know, another very remarkable woman that I wish all people knew her name um, is Hildegard of Bingen. I mean, Hildegard of Bingen is absolutely amazing. She's a preacher. She is a um, visionary. She is a a songwriter, a musician. Um, she's a you know a poet, um, and she also talks a whole lot about how women and men reflect the image of God. You know, this idea of the Trinity, and how women and men are co heirs and co equal. And, you know, this is in the in the 12th century. And we already see a woman who understands the um, implications of teachings that say that women are not made in the image of God or that women are under the power of men for all eternity. And so I think one of the things I was trying to do was just highlight that this isn't something created in the post-1960s feminist revolution, that this is something women have always seen, have always spoken out against, and always realized that the way that women are presented in the Bible is not what's reflected in the teachings of patriarchy. And can you talk a bit more about, um, in medieval Christianity, there were opportunities, I mean, women's experience in in medieval Christianity was different. There's a shift that happens in the Protestant Reformation. But I wonder if um, it would be helpful to to just sketch what what, um, opportunities were open within, you know, um, or what the culture was in medieval Christianity around women and men in the church and maybe women and men in leadership in the church. Right. So one of the things that I think evangelicals also don't understand is, um, and especially people in my like Baptist world, you know, we have no theology of ordination. So we, you know, even thinking about what ordination is or what does it mean, why some people get to be a leader and some people don't. It's very hard in in worlds that don't have any theology of ordination. But even in evangelical um, circles that have a theology of ordination, what we don't realize is that ordination is constructed. It's historically constructed. Yes, we build from biblical texts and biblical moments, but there's really no theology of ordination in the Western church, which we are mostly the heirs of today, um, until the 11th and 12th century, when we start seeing this theology of ordination kind of beginning to take root. It's also at the time that the ecclesiastical hierarchy is really beginning to root itself in power and beginning to be able to have a demonstrable authority over large areas. I mean, this is all something historically constructed. And so we can't really talk about a theology of ordination um, in any sort of coherent way until we get to the central Middle Ages. Um, now, I'm glossing over a lot of stuff. You know, we can think about Eastern Orthodoxy, where we have actually a different sort of theology of ordination, which has taken root. Um, And evangelicals need to know about that, too, because it has women who are ordained from the very early church. But nonetheless, um, in the Central Middle Ages, um, there is this theology of ordination where only men can be priests. That is very true. Um, And it's because women's bodies are considered to be impure. 
and only men sort of reflect Jesus as the male body um, and women's bodies don't measure up. However, at the same time, most men would never be priests. I mean, this is actually important. Most men would never be priests. Only a very small percentage of them could get into the priesthood, which put them on this sort of weird equality with women um, in the lay church. And women in the lay church could gain religious authority by rejecting their femininity, by rejecting um, getting married and having children. And by surrendering themselves to God, they could make their bodies more like men, sort of theologically speaking. In fact, um, you know, there was a sermon I was just working on reading this morning, too, also, where it says women and God be men. Um, and so by this, women can gain religious authority. And so we get female preachers, teachers, leaders in the medieval church. We also get the medieval church emphasizing Mary Magdalene as an apostle to the apostles. Um, we get statements in medieval sermons that even Paul, that where Paul gets it wrong, women get it right. I mean, that's just incredible. Um, and that was something that was accepted, that women could have that type of theological um, authority in the medieval world because Jesus gave it to them. And that's something we see emphasized that Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, all of these women were given authority in the, in the New Testament. Um, and so because of this, women can wield authority. Um, so, you know, patriarchy is still there. Women are still mostly limited. Most women do not have religious authority, but they can. And they can have it in a way that really starts to disappear af after the Reformation. So what happens in the Reformation that, yeah, yeah. that, that women lose that um, ability to have that religious authority? So scholars argue about the Reformation all the time. Um, and so I'm not going to come in again and say I have definitive answers here. But what we do know, there are some general patterns that we agree upon. And women after the Reformation their godliness is found in being a wife. And this is something that is very, you know, it's no longer to be a virgin, to be a monastic, to be a single woman dedicated, dedicating her life to God. That is not the highest godly calling for women anymore. Now it is to be a wife, married, mother of children under the authority of your husbands. Um, it does elevate the role of wife. This is great because most women are married but it also puts a cap on what they can do that wasn't there in the medieval world. Um, so even though most women would not have become religious authorities in the medieval world, there was an option for them to be able to. And that really starts to go away after the Reformation. Um, and as I said, it's not like gains or losses for women. It's, I mean, there's, I really like the way Judith Bennett puts it, where she says, um, you know, there's essentially there's this continuum of patriarchy, this patriarchal equilibrium, where even if women gain in some area, they lose it in another area. So things really don't change for them all that much. It's just that it's different. You know, the way that patriarchy affects women is different. So it's not that the Reformation's bad for women. It's not that the medieval world was good for women. It's that patriarchy adapts to culture and it still manages to keep women under the authority of men just in different ways. Oh, that's a helpful distinction. Uh, you, you mentioned in your chapter on the Protestant Reformation that you see also, you see a shift in um, where godliness is located for women, but you also talk about a shift in um, texts that are mentioned in sermons. And, and the, the household codes in Paul's letters become important in a Reformation sermon in the way that they weren't, ref, they weren't you know, important in medieval um, Christianity. Why do you think that is? And what do you think, uh, what are we inheriting from that? So I think there's, there's lots of things going on here. One of them is simply, even though the Bible was always accessible to people in the medieval world, that's another Protestant myth. Um, it wasn't as accessible simply because we didn't have the printing press and it was expensive to copy Bibles. Um, and so that limits, even though, you know, there's not this grand Catholic scheme to keep the Bible out of the hands of people. 
Um, it has to do with simply the logistics, a lot of the logistics. And uh, anyway, we could talk about Arundel's constitutions, et cetera, but I do talk about those a little bit in the book and you can go read about that somewhere else. Um, but after the Reformation, the Bible does become more accessible because there's more of it and it's being translated more frequently into vernacular languages. Um, so part of this is simply the accessibility of the Bible, where suddenly people can like quote things that before they were just memorizing pieces of the Bible and hearing it from sermons. And now all of a sudden, you know, they have this stuff and they just go proof texting mad. And, you know, I mean, that's part of what we can think about post-Reformation sermons is they go proof texting mad. I think because they can, um, you know, it's really, it's a moment. They're like, oh my gosh, there's all these verses that we could tag onto this one, even if they're not related at all, just because I can look them up and tell you about them. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is because I think because Reformation theology, because of its emphasis on the spiritual equality of women and men, there's nothing wrong with women's bodies in Reformation theology. Um, and so theoretically, women should be able to have the same type of authority as men. Um, and so if you think about, but in the patriarchal world of the early modern world, where we see law becoming more restrictive against women and women's place in society becoming more restricted under the authority of men, that it's sort of like, oh, well, scripture certainly should support this too. And where does it look like scripture supports this? The Pauline text taken out of context and applied to an early modern world where they fit the culture of the early modern world. And so we begin to see the, these, you know, the household codes, um, Timothy, women be silent, women, you know, the interpretation of male overseers, et cetera. These texts begin to be used with a vengeance against women in a way that they never have been before. And that's a very stark contrast. Um, and I think that's probably a big surprise to most evangelical readers of scripture that but prior to the Reformation, you don't see those texts used in the way that they are certainly currently, you know, and then in the Reformation. I think that's a really important point to make um, because, it, again, it just pushes this idea that we we think this because we've always thought this and um, that's just not a tenable you're no, showing us it's not a tenable it's not. argument. Yeah. And and I and I think it's in like when when we're talking about Bible um and the availability of the Bible, it might maybe surprise people that you move from this chapter on the Reformation to I think the next chapter is the chapter on Bible translation. Um and you take us through the history of Bible translation. So again, I'm, I'm it's an open-ended question, but what can the history of Bible translation? Again, we don't think of Bible translations as having history. Um necessarily. I, I'm always pushing my students to think about this because I think it's really important and really interesting. Um, but what can the history of Bible translation teach us about, you know, current debates on gender inclusive Bible translations? Yeah, well, at the risk of getting myself slammed again, um, the history of Bible translations really pushes against our understanding of inerrancy today. And our understanding of inerrancy, I think the way that we interpret it is I always think about like the Princess Bride, you know, that word, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And that's sort of my response to everybody with inerrancies. I don't think that word means what you think it means. We think it means that the Bible is that the Bible is completely trustworthy and completely intact and that it is a fully inspired word of God. I'm with you on all those things. What it actually means is that the Bible, the way it is used in our translations is that it is, it can't be wrong in really our modern English translations. That's often the way that it is. And what we don't understand is that humans made choices about how we interpret some of those words. And I try to get this across in my book, you know, saying that on the one hand, it never changes what I call the big stories, the important stories of the Bible, like Jesus coming to rescue humanity. Um, it doesn't change any of that stuff. What it changes, though, are the sort of the little stories, like is Junia an apostle? And um, if Phoebe is a deacon, and what does that word deacon mean? Um, it changes those stories and gender inclusive language. Um, you know, is Paul talking to the brothers, the men, you know, men, fathers and brethren? That's a early modern sermon heading. Um, or is Paul talking to the good men and women? 
which is a medieval sermon heading. Um, it changes those stories. And what I was really trying to impress upon evangelicals is that those were choices that were made in these early modern English texts um, in a world that was already writing women out of language. Because at this time in the early modern world, um, language, the English language is becoming identified you know, with the written text, with the profession of men, with these political figures. I mean, you can really see this in Shakespeare with sort of the seven ages of man and the way it kind of goes through. I mean, text is becoming more androcentric, male, male perspective. And it is no surprise that these learned men who are using language in a much more male-centric way, when they translate the Bible, they do the same thing. They carry that male-centered lens to how they interpret the Bible, especially with English, which is not a good language to translate gender complexities. <laughs> I, I, I'll have to tell you that. <laughs> so, so the reason we think the Bible, the reason we think the Bible is so clear about male authority is because we are reading it through a male-centered English translation that wasn't created until after the Reformation and became even more male-centered in the 19th century. So, mm. yeah, well, as you know, a person who spends I, I mean, most of my time I spend reading the New Testament, I spend reading in Greek. And every time I get to those those passages in Paul that every time you talked about, well, the Bible is clear. Every time I read them in Greek, I'm going, whatever these are, they are not they are not easy texts. They're not clear. The grammar is hard. The vocabulary is hard. Um, there, there's just there's room for space. Uh, there's space for for different views of, of of how we read these texts and the consequences of. Um, I think it's one thing to say there's space, you know, and we can come to a different understanding of a difficult text. It's quite another thing to say that the texts themselves are clear. Yes, because they're not clear. That's great. Um, and the ones that and the ones that actually are clear have then been problematized, like. Romans 16, 7 and Junia. Yes. That is a text that, that no one really disagreed about. <laughs> no. It's no one modern, really disagreed. I know. It's crazy. Um, and, when you, and, and, and every time I look at that, I just go, we aren't having an honest conversation about texts anymore. We're not having an on, we're not having an honest conversation about bias. It, it's just like, Yeah, no, I think we're on the same page there. And that's what, you know, and so in me even mentioning it in here, all of a sudden, as I said, I got hammered with, oh, she's not an inerrantist. She doesn't believe the Bible's trustworthy. Therefore, we don't have to pay attention to her. And I'm just sitting here. I'm thinking, do you even realize that your construction of inerrancy is not informed by the Bible? As I said, I'm going to get hammered with that. But it's it's true. It it is true, and like I am a person who you know would fully affirm what you have said about inerrancy, the trustworthiness, the completeness of Scripture, um, while recognizing that Scripture itself comes to us like it's a you know it's a process through which we get what we call the New Testament. It doesn't just you know come down from heaven. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that that process, I think, I would attribute to the work and witness of the the Spirit in the Church. But there's still a human element to that process, and one of the things that I think we can learn from um, looking at the process is just to kind of be open with our understanding of of texts, to hold 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 our position a little bit with a little more humility, a little more open handedness, because. That's what we see the early church doing in the process of, you know, canon in a lot of ways. Yeah. Anyway. Well, um, yes. Yeah. And also I'm thinking about the theological cohesiveness of our understanding. Yeah. You know, do, if Paul says this here, then does this match up with what he says here? And well, exactly. I mean, I would like to say, I would like to give Paul the benefit of the doubt and say that he doesn't actually contradict himself in the space of three letters or three chapters in a letter. Um, and I and I realize that you know complementarians would want to affirm that too. It's just that we read those texts differently. But I I think that there's I always go back and forth with my students when I teach them uh, on First Corinthians eleven and then First Corinthians fourteen. Um, you know the text, its plain reading says silence. 
it says women be silent. Um, it doesn't say anything about pastoral authority. It doesn't say anything about senior pastors. It doesn't say anything about leading, you know, leadership. It just says women be silent. So it seems to me that if we're going to talk about plain reading, we have to actually look at what the text is saying and then be consistent with our own view of it. Or we have to say, take a step back and give Paul the benefit of the doubt. And that's, I guess, what I would maybe advocate for doing. And I know that I'm sure I will get slammed for that, but uh it's well, and part of giving Paul the benefit of the doubt is putting him in historical context. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I would like to think that Paul's words were, you know, absolutely meaningful in correcting something that was going on in Corinth. I might not know what that is. And that's and that's just part of my distance between the text and modern modern Western culture, I think. All right. Sorry. That was a tangent. We'll get back to the book. Uh, I you you have then a chapter on the enlightenment which you've alluded to and the cult of domesticity that comes kind of it's the it's the child of the reformation readings in some ways but it's also not um but but it's also i have to say it's probably the most cringeworthy um chapter in the book for me uh, because it's a chapter that talks about modesty and purity and the the sanctification of modesty and purity and subordination um so i guess there's a lot in there, but what, what is the cult of domesticity that you're talking about? And like, what does that have to do with conversations that are going on currently about modesty and purity? So the cult of domesticity, um, that's the way that scholars often talk about it in the, in, in Europe, but it also manifests in the U S as the cult of true womanhood is often the way that it's so, but they're essentially the same things. Their roots are the same thing. Um, their roots are, this change in European culture, especially British culture has a lot to do with this. Imperial attitudes have a lot to do with this. I mean, this is tied up with imperialism. It's tied up with racism. You just can't get out of it too. I mean, these things all go together. And it's the sort of the idea that women are you know, created because of the enlightenment that we, we kind of go back to this Aristotelian idea that there's something wrong with women. And so that women's bodies are created smaller with smaller brains, that women are not created for the heavy lifting of the world, not created, um, you know, to do the important jobs simply because they don't have the capacity to do that. And so it kind of takes all this. Well, then it's like, well, what do women have the capacity to well, their bodies make children, so that's what they have the capacity to do. And so everything about them should be focused on that child rearing. Um, and part of what women are supposed to do, too, is teach women. You know, there's something about women that, um, you know, and this is the big flip for my students, I think, is that coming from a medieval perspective, women were always considered to be the seductresses because of Eve. You know, women, there's something wrong with women. And so we're the ones who caused the sin. You know, that that was the medieval understanding. But when we get after the Reformation with sort of this emphasis on the godly life and this, this sort of slow growth, that women are the pure ones and that women are, you know, because they are less, their brains are smaller, they're not as crafty as men. I mean, it's this really interesting thing that they're simply incapable of the kind of evil that men are capable. I mean, this is a fascinating shift. And so we get this emphasis that women are, that women are innately pure and, and more innocent than men. Um, and so we have to protect that. We have to protect what women are. And so we have to make sure women aren't vulnerable. We have to make sure they're not in positions where they can, where these crafty men can come in and seduce them. You can think about all of this literature on like the, the night, the, the prostitute, prostitutes, these innocent young girls who go to a big city and then they get drawn into these prostitution rings and completely, you know, their whole lives are destroyed. Um, and so it, this is all rests on this idea of the innocence of women. And so there, this kind of creates this idea that we have to protect women. Now, the problem is, is that most women can't be this. Most women are working women. Most women's families cannot afford for women to sit at home and um, knit, knit clothes and do whatever else, you know, then stay inside the house. This is only applicable to wealthy women, wealthy white women. It's only applicable to them. And so it also kind of puts this idea of homemaking as a something to aspire to. 
that it is a mark of status. It's a mark of purity. Um, it's not only what women should do, but it's what all women should try to do, um, even if it's mostly unattainable. And of course, the downside, one of the big downsides of this is it is this emphasis on women's purity. You know, they have to be protected from men, um, which means that we start getting these sort of, you know, if part of protecting yourself from men is not only the clothing that you wear, but staying away from men staying in your houses, staying away from them, then what does that mean for women who can't do that? For women who have to work every day? You know, this is why we start seeing these types of women, these working women, they start being identified as prostitutes. And sort of, you know, like the reason that women, you know, we can even think about it the 19th century where they started doing things like going and rounding up women on the streets who were out in places that were not considered respectable, even though they were just doing their jobs to support their family. And they would round them up and they would do investigations on their body to see if they were virgins or to see if they had any sort of venereal diseases. And they would essentially charge them with being prostitutes, even if these women were doing nothing more than doing their daily work. And so this emphasis on purity um, creates this unattainable idea for most women. And by doing so, it creates categories that most women will never be able to achieve and it puts aspersions on ordinary women just trying to do their jobs. And even on those ordinary women that now they have to be even more careful about how they dress and the places that they go so that they are not mistakenly confused with being a prostitute. And this is something we still carry with us in our world today. If we think about all this purity culture, all it is is trying to create an image for women so that we're not confused with being you know, sexually loose. And this even, you know, ties into the story that I gave is bra straps showing that if your bra strap shows that this is something that makes you seen as sexually promiscuous and not a pure woman. I mean, we can just think of how absurd that is, but that's sort of the aftermath, the conclusions of this type of thinking. Well, and how, just how damaging that is for women and especially I have a daughter, you know, for her to hear that at age, you know, whatever. Um, it just, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that she would doubt her worth as a person, uh, based on her clothing because of her, because of her body. Exactly. Um, and I just, and it, and it theologizes our kind of innocuous choices in some ways. Um, and I, and I, I find that, yeah, it's just, it's helpful, I guess, to hear the, the roots of that, historical roots of that. I guess it's, and especially it's maybe encouraging to know that it hasn't always been that way, that, that we make this a theology, you know, we make this a theological problem um, and we make it sound like it's always been, like, that's what Paul's talking about. It's probably not what Paul's talking about when he talks about modesty. It's, I, I will say, I will say it's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about modesty. No. I mean, that's a whole other <laughs> idea of modesty. It, it really that has is. to do with Roman it culture, is. which Absolutely. is completely different from medieval culture, which is completely different from modern purity culture. I mean, historically constructed. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's interesting to see Paul's text get co-opted into modern culture and made about bra straps and tank tops and not about yes. money. Yes. So, oh, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So fun to have a conversation with someone who's not in your discipline, just all sorts of interesting connections. Um, so we're coming to the, you know, the end ish of our interview and you have, um, you have a chapter, I think you get probably more like the closer you get to contemporary culture, probably the more contentious it gets. (laughs) Um, because, you know, because people are still having this conversation. Um, but you really drive the home, the point that you're trying to make, which is to say that biblical, quote unquote, biblical womanhood um, is, first of all, not biblical. And second of all, we can't confuse that um, with gospel truth. So I guess, how does this become a gospel issue? How does the belief in women's subordination become a gospel issue? Um, and what do we do about it? Right. So quickly, it becomes a gospel issue in the late 19th and 20th century with the um, sort of rise of fundamentalism. 
And this is the rise of fundamentalism. I understand why this view of scripture arose. I mean, there was a lot of things going on with people who got really carried, carried away with saying the Bible's nothing but myths and nothing but a collection of stories that has no spiritual significance. And I sort of understand why a lot of Christians reacted very negatively to that. Unfortunately, it also has led to anti-intellectualism, which is the whole, you know, another thing. So there's a lot of problems with what was going on. And I understand fundamentalist interpretations. But what it also led to was this idea that if we do not interpret scripture this one way, and this is the plain reading of the text, which means women be silent, which becomes women can't be pastors, but anyway, but women be silent. If we don't see this plain and literal reading of the text, then what that means is we don't believe in biblical authority. We do not believe that, um, essentially, we believe that the Bible is flawed. And if we believe that the Bible is flawed, then that means that we are starting on the road to heresy and apostasy. And one of the funniest outcomes of this chapter that I wrote, I guess, you know, it's one of those things you don't think about, but I sort of was co-opting some of the things we see in the New Testament, the use of hyperbole and the use of sort of, and so I end the chapter by saying, no wonder my husband and I were fired because we had become heretics. And I actually had someone write back to me and say, well, you know, you said yourself, you were a heretic. (laughs) And I was like, well, I did. But I wasn't actually meaning I really was a heretic. I was saying our interpretation has become so rigid that anyone who says there is another way to see the biblical text that actually makes more sense, that we, instead of listening to them and thinking about how they could still be faithful Christians and maybe just read the Bible differently on this issue, and maybe we should learn from them. We simply draw the boundaries and push them out of the church and say they are heretics. And so we no longer have to listen to them. And so this is what I think, you know, by being gospel truth, we have said that if you do not believe that women are subordinate to men, and this is something that we will even carry so far and say it is written into the Trinity itself, that the Trinity, instead of being, um, you know, co-equal, is now hierarchical. And that, and that if you do not believe this, that you are outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And it's so absolutely ironic because reading hierarchy into the Trinity is one of the oldest heresies we know of. So. Is that helpful? Is that- <laughs> yes, that is helpful. And I think it's probably important to, to to recognize that there are good systematic, especially I'm thinking of like Fred Sanders and his book on the Trinity. I mean, I Fred is, you know, he's a complementarian, but he doesn't he doesn't bring the Trinity into it. So I always tell my students who think differently on this issue than I do, we can have a conversation about these Pauline texts. They're hard texts. Let's come and we'll we'll reason together with scripture. Let's not bring the Trinity into it. That is just not a good, it's just not a good line of reasoning. And you end up in a place that no one wants, you just should not be. Um, And it's a very recent argument. You know, most of my students like old arguments. So if it's a recent argument, it's suspect. Um, But but if you can, I just, yes, uh, that's my my plea to my students. I think it's my plea to my listeners. If you think differently on this issue, we can talk about that, but think think carefully about how you bring the trinity into the argument. Yes. And, and yeah. And think <laughs> and think carefully about why you don't want to listen to people who approach the text differently. I mean, I think a big part of this is evangelicals have lost the ability to listen to people who we may not see eye to eye with. Um it's one of the things I love about Lucy Pepiot's reasoning. And it's one of the reasons, too, I start off my Paul chapter with that question, what if you're wrong? Because I just want to reintroduce that idea that we can be faithful Christians and maybe see things differently on some of these issues. Um, And that, I hope, will help lead us to dialogue and conversation that's constructive. So how do you think we do that, though? How do we have constructive conversation with people who think differently? about Paul, about this data, about its ramifications, how can it like, 
What are the ground rules, do you think? One of the ground rules, and this is really, you know, the subheading of my book, is we can't tether it to salvation. I mean, this is what has happened with complementarianism with so many of them is that they won't listen to anybody else because that will make their salvation suspect. And so we have to understand we cannot hold these issues that really are culturally constructed or that we come to the Bible. Um, we cannot hold them as tightly as we hold Jesus. And I think, you know, and in doing that is for me, too. You know, it's really hard for me to see the text any other way. I have, I confess, especially considering what has happened since the book came out, I'm losing my patience with some of these really hardline folk who are just like, well, I'm not even, you make a lot of good points, but you're not an inerrantist. So I'm just going to throw, you know, throw you off the cliff. And I'm like, do you even realize that you're not willing to even listen? And so um, I think it, it creates a, a posture of humility that a lot of us aren't accustomed to. And even as academics, I, I think academics like to think we're more accustomed to a posture of humility, but sometimes we aren't either. You know, we have our own things, our hills on which we are going to die and we're going to fight to the death over. Um, and so I think some of it is just realizing it's just backing down and not making it centered on ourselves. But making it centered on, you know, I think that's why theology really helps with this, because we're like, okay, well, what's the purpose of our argument here? Is the purpose of our argument because we're trying to maintain the power structures in our own church or maintain our justification for staying home with our children? And instead of being like, whoa, whoa, you know, that actually has nothing to do with it. Your choice to stay home with your child, you can do that, but it has nothing to do with your salvation. And so I think if we can decenter ourselves and step back, then we can, are more able to actually talk about these issues. Um, but I think it's really hard for us to decenter ourselves. And I think that's, and, and it's hard for me to do too. One of the reasons I put my testimony out there and made myself vulnerable is because that's also a way of decentering myself because I'm showing you all of the places I was wrong. And I'm showing you all of the places that I had, you know, that I struggled and that these things were hard. And by doing that, it kind of joins in this, this human that as humans, we struggle and life is hard and we get things wrong. And if we can all admit that, then we can talk to each other better. So what's your hope for this book going forward? What do you hope comes out of it? I hope, I hope that women, I really wrote this book to women. I'm, I'm so glad so many men are reading it and I want them to hear it. But I want women to realize that their value is not in the hierarchy of the church, that their value is not in what they have chosen to do or they have been forced to do because of their circumstances. I want them to realize that God always sees them and that women have always realized how difficult it is to be a woman and that women in the past have always seen that God treats women with value and treats them the same, not even just the same as men. But if you actually look at how God, how Jesus talks to women in the New Testament versus how Jesus talks to the apostles and the disciples, Jesus tells women often that they are of great faith. He doesn't usually tell that to the disciples. <laughs> you know, it's very, <laughs> he usually doesn't. He says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And then he looks at women and says, you are of great faith. And I mean, I, this is a radical thing that Jesus does. And I want women to hear it. I want them to hear that they are not alone. And that because they have struggled with their value in the church, that this is something that, that there's a history to this and that they can read Paul without fear. And so, you know, that's really, I, I want women to hear that um, no matter where they end up landing after this, I want them to hear that they don't have to be afraid of biblical texts and that they don't, they don't have to be afraid to recognize their calling. I mean, so many women live in fear of recognizing their calling because they fear that it's going to lead them to apostasy and liberalism and whatever else. And I want them to not be afraid 
Um, so that's sort of, you know, my hope for that. In, in big hope, what I hope is that the making of biblical womanhood will show evangelicals how much of the conversation they don't know, how much historical scholarship they don't know about. Um, I want to open the doors to them maybe recognizing that there is a whole big story out there that they're ignorant of. And maybe they will start exploring that bigger story, no matter where they come down on. If they can just see that there is a bigger picture out there, which will lead them to understanding that people who read these texts differently are also faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So those are big things. Those are wonderful things. I, I, it's my favorite part of the interview when I ask about a hope for a book. But on script listeners, this is um, all the time we have today. And we've been speaking to Dr. Beth Allison Barr on her new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which was published by Brazos Press. Thank you so much for um, joining us, Beth. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks and for having thanks- me. Yeah. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.